Good evening and welcome to the National Library. I'm Catherine Pavel, the Director of Community Outreach and I really appreciate that you're all here tonight to talk about art, history, poetry, literature, life, when you could be at home listening to the, um, the budget reply speech. I know how riveting that can be. As we begin this evening, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land that the library is very privileged to stand on. I thank their elders past and present for caring for this land that we have the privilege to call our home. Tonight, we're going to be spending the evening celebrating the life and work of one of Australia's best-loved and most respected poets, Judith Wright. But tonight, I think we're going to look at her from a different, through a different lens. She remains a giant figure within Australian art, culture and politics. And here at the library, we're very, very privileged to be the custodians of her personal papers. Her papers are diverse, reflecting the breadth of her interests. As well as correspondence, there's research relating to conservation and Aboriginal concerns, poems and drafts of her books, newspaper cuttings and financial records. Her papers are complemented by the library's collection of her published works, by portraits and by oral history recordings. The collection offers rich rewards for researchers and I'm sure we're going to hear tonight about some of the excitement the delights, the frustrations of working with Judith Wright's personal papers. Here to discuss her beautiful new biography, and it is beautiful, it's just one of those books that you want to pick up and hold, um, The Unknown Judith Wright, is Dr Georgina Arnott. Georgie works in the History Department at Monash University and she's dedicated her doctorate and now her first book to the life of Judith Wright. Joining Georgie in conversation is Professor Tom Griffiths. And Tom, I know, is no stranger to any of you. He's a Canberran. He's one of ours. And he's also director of the Centre for Environmental History at the ANU. Tom's most recent book, The Art of Time Travel, includes a chapter on Judith Wright. And congratulations, Tom. It's been shortlisted for the Douglas Stewart Prize for Nonfiction in the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards, which is a wonderful achievement. Please join me in welcoming... Georgie and Tom for a discussion about the beloved Judith Wright. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Catherine, for that uh, introduction. Um, yes, so we're here this evening to talk about Judith Wright and Judith Wright as a historian, and particularly uh, these two books of hers, The Generations of Men, published in 1959, and a rewriting of that family history or aspects of it, The Cry for the Dead in 1981. And uh, um, we're going to be talking especially about Judith's early life, aren't we, Georgie? Because that's really the focus of your book. So perhaps we could start by you explaining how you became interested in Judith Wright. Okay, thank you and good evening, everyone. Um, I came to Judith Wright through her poetry. I loved a lot of her poetry and um, I was really... I guess intrigued by the dilemma that she faced about whether poetry could make anything happen, whether it could change the world. Um, and she seemed to, um, in the middle period of her life, believe that it couldn't and she put it aside and engaged, as we know, in, in all sorts of activities, environmental activism and so on, and history writing. 
Um, so the more I read about those parts of her life and the more I read of that material, I, I thought um, I really agreed with Jennifer Strauss who'd said in, in 1995 that, that Judith hadn't been recognised as properly as a public intellectual and that she needed to be. That's who she had been. Um, she'd shaped debate on a number of key issues in uh, a large number of key issues in Australian society. Um, so I decided that I would do a, a biography, an intellectual biography of her life and take her seriously as a, a, a public intellectual. And then I started um, researching a bit about her background. I thought it would just be a little bit about her background and her family life. And then I came to see how profoundly influencing, uh, influential this, this background had been um, to her life and, and decided to do a bit of my own investigation into that history and, and then found, I suppose, a bit of a gap between her accounts and um, some of the material that I was coming up with about her family. And um, I suppose it just illuminated to me the narrative that she had, the particular narrative she had about her family. Um, so and so I decided yeah. to focus on that, yeah. She was a very powerful storyteller about her own life and her own ancestry, mm. wasn't she? And so when I was reading your book, I was thinking how it grows out of your admiration for her. Mm. Very, that comes through very strongly, your admiration and respect for Judith. Mm. But you're also chafing against her control of the narrative. Mm. that she, in a sense, uh, chose her first biographer, Veronica Brady. She, of course, wrote memoirs and much family histories. Um, there's an interview with her here in the National Library mm -hmm. um, uh, and autobiography. And so um, part of what comes through the book is your tension between the admiration and the feeling that but somehow one needs to get beyond that control and mm. uh, be a little bit subversive, look behind the public storytelling. And, and so that drew you to her mm. early life particularly. Mm. So that's been less, she kind of dismissed that as influential? I think mm. absolutely she dismissed um, her, um, her teenage years and her, her aspects of her childhood um, and, and her university years, which I found so interesting um, and that's mm what the book largely concentrates on because I think in the account of any writer's life, biographers tend to really focus on those years of becoming a writer and becoming and, and discovering the world through a, through a paradigm like academia um, and sh she had not discussed that at all really or very only very marginally in her autobiography and Veronica hadn't discussed it much in her uh, wonder, wonderful biography. So that took me to those areas and it absolutely was a tension because I do hold um, great respect for Judith and um, I didn't want to be seeming as if I was being critical of her but I feel, you know, that at the end it's it's a different story of her life and it is charting a, a development, how she changed um, over the course of her life, how her thinking changed on a number of issues. <coughs> but how it was inevitably, as um, everyone's is, sort of bound by her early experiences and her family experiences. Um, and to me, that makes her, I, I suppose, a more admirable person because she's more human. And um, 
if I can just tell that little story about the, the irony of, um, of the admiring biography that, that, that um, Veronica Brady had written of Judith. Um, Judith was pressured by her publishers to, to choose a biographer in the end. She agreed to Veronica writing her biography and said, well, at least she'll stay on the other side. She'll be on the other side of the country. She won't be a, too much of a nuisance. And Veronica was so incredibly respectful of, of Judith's account and of her life. And it's actually it's one of the wonderful things in the archive is seeing the, the correspondence between Judith and Veronica, which all took place via mm -hmm. fax machine. Um, and often Judith would write in capital letters some reason. I think she said at one point, I couldn't turn the caps off and <laughs> so all these faxes come through seeming very urgent. Um, and she, Veronica would consult her on the most, the smallest of issues. Should I include this? Should I not include it? Or how would you phrase this? And of course, the big, one of the big issues was how to represent her, her relationship with Nugget Coombs. And um, Veronica took her lead from Judith on everything um, and when the book came out uh, I'm sure Judith uh, Judith and Veronica had a fantastic relationship and, and I think Judith probably appreciated the book on lots of levels but she was also a bit appalled that she'd come across as she said Saint Judith and then at that point she was hoping another biography would actually be written which would be slightly modify that position after having not wanted a biography in the first place yeah because in many ways, Judith was scarifyingly self-critical, wasn't she? So Saint Judith was definitely not who she wanted to be seen as. Um, can I take you to the, the frontier uh, in New, New, early New South Wales in the 1830s when her family, uh, her ancestors, George and Margaret Wyndham, uh, arrive in the Hunter Valley uh, in the late 1820s, isn't it? And um, what you unearth uh, through your historical work is that they were much more directly involved with dispossession of Aboriginal people in the Hunter Valley than Judith mm. perhaps was ready to admit. And this is so interesting because um, we rightly identify Judith with the um, discovery really of the violence of the colonial frontier and um, that's part of what uh, she develops through the two books we're talking about. Mm -hmm. In the later book, Cry for the Dead, she returns to her family history and feels that in Generations of Men she was too nostalgic and romantic and, and she missed a big story and that story is the story of the frontier. Mm -hmm. So even though mm -hmm. she is uh, someone who subjects her pastoral dynasty to this examination, this scrutiny, even so you find that perhaps she couldn't look full in the face of mm. what was going on in the, in the 1830s. Yes, and I think there's a lot of unanswered questions and it's hard to be really <coughs> sure about these things, but I certainly came to the conclusion that she, she was able to really critically examine that inheritance, <coughs> that pastoral inheritance. But when it came to discussing the role of her first Australian forebears, George and Margaret Wyndham, I don't think she could fully confront the, their involvement, mm. their very probable involvement in, in dispossession. And I guess the, the clearest example I came across of this was some letters in which um, um, the, English, um, the English family, uh, the w English Windhams, had written 
to George about his, his, an incident he had described um, where he had been shooting at the blacks. And over a number of um, letters, these, this, this incident is described and, and it seems as if there were a number of incidents. And this is when they travelled north to Queensland and were taking up new land there. And there, this was, of course, a period of great violence in, in Queensland history in the mid-19th century. So it was, of course, likely that they were engaged in very direct battle. Um, Judith had seen those letters and she, she mentioned them in Cry for the Dead, but she mentioned them in this way which I just... I could not really understand and I, I just... It still boggles me because I think... She, she, sa she says something like, um, it's not clear who he was shooting at and not clear who was doing the shooting. And the, the rifle anyway was a present from the English relatives, as if, well, it was their fault. Um, and, you know, maybe there is some other source that, that will explain to me how she came to those conclusions. But to, to read the letters, it just seems very clear that they were engaged in this warfare. Um, and yet in Cry for the Dead, they still come across as these fairly, um, you know, um, romantic figures and at a distance to that violence. And so I think partly that is also because the focus of the book, the geographical focus, which I've also puzzled over quite a lot, because the book is really mainly focused in Queensland, um, where they actually settled initially... Um, after deciding they didn't want to take up land in Tasmania, they went on to the Hunter Valley and that's where they occupied vast acreages originally in the 1830s and 1840s and that was also the scene of a lot of violence. Um, and there's just a, a bit of evidence, a few sources here and there, which um, suggests that they, they had some sort of relations with Aboriginal people, that they weren't that Aboriginal people were still living on their land and there certainly were a lot of violent incidents in that period, but um, it's hard to be clear. I guess the other thing that made me really sit up and uh, take notice was his very close association and friendship with Robert Scott, um, um, who, who was uh, recorded as having killed 17 Aboriginal people in a massacre and according to the Australian, and also um, being involved in a lot of other awful incidents where they would go out and seek retribution. So they were the best of friends, and it seems unlikely that George was not also having some sort of um, involvement, um, engagement with those, those mm -hmm. issues, yeah. Yes, so, so Robert Scott, this is the Singleton Magistrate, isn't it, um, in the Hunter Valley. And, yes. and really quite, as you show, quite closely allied family, close family mm, friend. Absolutely. And they're together there as this frontier is around them, isn't mm. it? And so it's very hard not to see that, there's, uh, that George Wyndham is implicated and, and thereby um, uh, that, that Judith's family more implicated um, in that uh, act of dispossession. And yet she went searching for that, you know, this is the author of Born of the Conquerors, mm. um, this, is the, this is the poet who wrote Nigger's Leap, New England, mm. the remarkable early poem about um, uh, effectively a massacre driving Aboriginal people in New England 
off a cliff face mm. to their deaths. Um, she revisited that the generations of men and then turned herself into a historian mm. in order to tell the story in the cry for the dead. Mm. So what what's happening that what's happening that well, she is not willing perhaps to go back to the the, quite the founding figures in her mm. dynasty. I think so. I think that the, 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 it's hard. <coughs> I, I suppose one has to be as imaginative as one can be in these situations and try to imagine what her upbringing was. And I think in her family, the mythology of those, those the story of their lives, those of Wyndhams and how they came to Australia and um, created uh, well, well, the beginning of a great pastoral dynasty and, and um, that continued for many generations. They, that was so strongly reinforced throughout her childhood, particularly by her grandmother, May Wright, Judith's grandmother, mm. who was the Wyndham's favoured granddaughter. And May had had a very reverential relationship with the Wyndham's and had tried to write a family history. She did um, publish the edited letters. Um, so I think to me, maybe, it, well, to me, certainly, it says something about the um, the strength of uh, our upbringings, our, our family history, and the way in which we're able to um, read bigger histories um, through those, and I th or the difficulty of reading bigger histories through those, because I think Judith is able to tell a, a, a really important bigger history in Cry for the Dead, but it's just, I suppose, when it comes to her family, um, to me, it kind of tends to fall back on that mythology, that original mm. mythology. So I certainly wouldn't say that Judith was unique in that respect. I'd say it's probably a human condition, but I'd be interested to know what you thought about that question too. Yes, uh, well, I'm interested in her, in my book, um, which is looked at over the shoulders of 14 historians at work, and it includes professional historians, academic historians, but also poet, mm. Judith, um, um, a, f a farmer, an archaeologist. Um, so looking at history, the practice of history broadly, um, and what interests, what attracts me to her work is this moment in the 1970s when she decides that, and we often, I think, see this moment as Judith turning away from poetry, even from kind of writing in a way towards her activism, which she was such a such a committed and dedicated activist on behalf of Aboriginal people, environmental causes, mm -hmm. um, against wood chipping, campaign against nuclear power, Australian Conservation Foundation, uh, call for a treaty, uh, working with Nugget Coombs on, on that. And, but she feels in the 70s mm -hmm. that she needs a different kind of writing to go out and do battle with, you know, that she needs to go beyond poetic or metaphorical truth to, to something where she can, which is empirical, um, grounded in evidence and she can literally do do battle with it and so she and you can tell this from the letters in the archive that she decides well I'm going to go back to history you know um, I studied history but I'm not a historian and I want to make myself a historian and I want to produce a book a history and I, I'm just so admiring of this mm. <laughs> process and that we can mm. follow it through the archive and that what she does is she doesn't um, turn her back on on poetry or writing, of course. It's just mm. a different kind of writing emerges and it's non-fiction and it is history. And, and Cry for the Dead is, is one of our pioneering histories of 
La Frontier in Australia. It comes out in the same year as uh, Henry Reynolds' The Other Side of the Frontier. They were in communication with one another. Um, it's, uh, it's a pioneering environmental history too. Uh, it's a really mm. forgotten dimension of, of this work, The Cry for the Dead, I think, is that she uh, really wanted to tell the story of the land as well as of its people. And partly it's because she felt in trying to research the Aboriginal experience that the sources are not telling her enough. Mm. So she decides, well, I need it to tell the story of the land as well because the land is witness to it's a people, if you like. So it's an environmental history. It's a, um, it's a history of Aboriginal people. And, of course, it is at the same time a history of her forebears and all of her forebears, uh, all of the people like her forebears who were out there on that frontier and grappling with very difficult moral mm. challenges. Uh, so, and I think in The Cry for the Dead... I mean, she was disappointed it didn't make more of a splash, <laughs> wasn't she? You know, she really hoped that this would help change people's attitudes, but it didn't sell particularly well and she didn't mm. get a lot of response to it. Mm. And one wonders if it's partly because she paired it back to be so lean and, um, um, you know, it's, it's lean, careful prose. She's carefully playing the historian. Uh, to the nth degree, in a way. She doesn't mm. write herself into it at all. Mm. She gets rid of the uh, emotional dimensions that suffuse generations of men, which was popular, um, because she really wants this uh, frontier history to accompany the work she's doing with Nugget Coombs on, on calling for an Aboriginal treaty uh, in the 1970s. But, and and um, one of her early... One of the things I learned from the archive was that she was had an early title for the book, which was... Um, a right to the soil, question mark. Mm. And uh, so that's at the heart mm. of, of her book. So, yeah, so I, I mean, mm. but what I found mm. so interesting about your work is I hadn't um, investigated that earlier period of the Wyndham. So you're mm. telling us a really interesting new story here. And also you talk about her relationship with history at university. So I didn't mm. go back and look at that either, but how interesting that is. Um, can you talk a little bit about... Yeah, she failed sure. history. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, well, so that's obviously satisfying to find out something <laughs> like that when you're a biographer. Um, that's not on the public record. She'd just she'd written in her her memoir that she'd studied history, that she didn't like it, and it was under Stephen Roberts. Um, and Stephen Roberts was an early Australian historian who wrote about the occupation of Australia, um, pastoral occupation, and he was he was really scathing about the squatocracy and I mean really scathing it's hard it's he writes about them being hungry and um, having this voracious desire to for land and because in land there was money and um, he's very uncomplimentary uncompl he says these were the spoilt sons who came out from Cambridge or Oxford from England and they just wanted to recreate their little Englands um, in the, on the land. And, th and that, he, he, he mentions, that involves conflict with Aboriginal people at some time, at some points. He doesn't really go into that extensively, but he does include that. Um, he was writing these works, which were groundbreaking in themselves in the 1930s and 1940s. And um, Judith studied history, came along to Sydney University in 1934, and did a first-year history course and um, under him. 
she, she, she didn't enter the exam that, that's recorded in her archive at Sydney Uni. Um, she hadn't mentioned that, so she failed history. That was the only subject she failed. And she didn't do it again. Um, and that really interested me. As also, and then I, so I went to Veronica Brady's biography and what was her explanation for this? And she said, oh, well, Judith didn't like the subject, um, didn't want to pursue it because it was not about, it wasn't really about Australia. It wasn't Australian history. Oh, hang on, that's a bit strange considering he was this pioneering Australian historian. But what she meant and um, was that it wasn't really about the Aboriginal people of Australia and their experience of that occupation. So, and then Judith in, um, in an essay, and I think in, um, certainly in an essay, she, she talks about Stephen Roberts, and I think in a letter she, she refers to him as that terrible historian. Um, and so she, I think what she, she, she made, her interpretation later in life, and certainly Veronica's interpretation was that Judith objected to the subject because it wasn't Australian enough that didn't include this Aboriginal history. Um, I came to the conclusion, I feel quite confidently, that that probably wasn't the most confronting aspect of it for Judith when she came along as a 20-year-old um, to Sydney University. Probably the most confronting aspect was his criticism of the squatocratic class and how mm. Australia had been in, um, settled. So um, there, were, there weren't other historians talking about Aboriginal history at the time, as we know, although Elkin who she also studied under, was um, starting to write about that a bit. Um, so mm -hmm. I think that's sort of just a small like, example, and I, in some ways it's not hugely significant, but it, it's, it, it's not... I, yeah, I, I guess the point of an example like that is it, it, demon it demonstrates how her thinking changed over time and perhaps how what her mindset was as a 20-year-old mm. and what it might have been and how it would have been for her going into those lecture halls and hearing also John Anderson, the philosopher, um, communist at that stage, speak. Um, her family absolutely could not stand communists and that was their concern that when she went to Sydney that she might encounter them, let alone sit in a lecture hall with them. Um, and so these really radical um, thinkers must have been such a shock for her um, coming from New England never having left New England much, um, going to boarding school there, and coming from a family um, of conservative rural politics. Um, mm. So I guess I wanted to try and recreate that world a little bit of, of her experience and then to, to also underline um, what an incredible thing it was that she did change her thinking and mm. that her thinking yeah. changed over those years. That's right. Yeah. Yes, well, I love what you did with the Stephen Roberts story. You rescued him for me, um, <laughs> because it's true, with hindsight we look back, and that, that's what historians are always working against hindsight, aren't we? You know, it's, uh, mm. it, it's so powerful, but uh, we use mm. it, but we have to also go against the grain of it, get back to the integrity of the time itself, and that's what you're doing. You're reminding us that Stephen Roberts, dismissed by Judith in later life as an awful old man, was actually only a dozen years older than her when she met him. He was a dynamic uh, teacher, he was. Um, he wrote his first book at the age of twenty. That book that she's talking about, mm. she wrote when he was twenty-four. Mm. Um, it was his master's thesis, and then he wrote the the squatting age one about the time Judith would have known him. Um, again, in his thirties, you know, he was mm. young, dynamic, very international, rather anti-English, as, as mm. you detect, European rather than British. Mm. So quite critical of the British Empire. So. Mm. Um, 
and so there's a there's a lot to admire in Stephen Robertson also that you would expect Judith might have admired mm. in him. So mm. it's very interesting to go back to to see what um, well how her hi her own personal history making has kind of. Uh, dismissed him, and of course, um, his work. From that, you know, when we look back today at it, it does. It's missing at least two huge stories: the stories of the other side of the frontier, and the stories of the land itself is more than just commodified mm. parcels to be handed out to colonists. Um, uh, you know, it has an environmental story that he was blind to as well. So, mm. of course, that's that's what history does. We go on reinterpreting. But I really like the way you take that. Um, that window into her university years and, and argue that really they're more influential uh, than uh, Judith herself was willing to remember. And you also rescue some of her early poetry, don't you? So that's where the book finishes really, isn't it, with the, your analysis of her early poetry. What mm. do you learn from her early poetry? I think now it's I, I think it's her early poetry um, it hasn't been confirmed um, so I did a kind of forensic examination of all the poetry that was studied that was published by Sydney uni students in their publications in the period that she was there she she'd said that I she published anonymously in those or under a pseudonym in those publications but she said I would never reveal my pseudonym even if wild horses dragged me so that was a bit of bait I had to go and look <laughs> there um, what there, were, there was um, one pseudonym, which was JW, um, that, but I, it's a bit, bit obvious, but um, I, I looked and, and part of why I forensically examine those poems is because I want to show how they're connected or I want to prove to myself that they were connected with the poetry she wrote later, that's, I guess, and, and, and I find a number of phrases um, that are repeated. And what I argue is the first, gen the first draft of her most famous poem, arguably Bullocky, that she wrote during those years. Um, the another another pseudonym was um, Margaret J, and that was there was no student at the university at the time called Margaret J. Um, <coughs> Margaret J was Margaret Wyndham's maiden name, and the poem, the one poem that Ma Margaret J wrote, um, was about. It has images of um, wine and blood dripping through the fingers. So, and, and a sort of gothic sense of um, the Australian landscape. So that was very interesting. Um, I think mainly the poems are, they, they show me that she was still at that stage very influenced by the Victorian style of poetry that her mother really revered. And it makes a lot of sense. She was only in her early 20s. Um, and they also show her writing about sexuality in a very frank way for a, a woman of her time and even in the context of Sydney Uni where those student publications there was a lot of poetry which was erotic I guess you might say but it was always from the male perspective and there's at least one poem which I ascribed to Judith which was talking about that from a, a woman's perspective and that was really interesting to me. It showed that she um, she was she wasn't um, she wasn't a kind of um, well she was a controversialist from early on. That was part of her personality, and she was wanting to challenge mythologies from early on. Um, and the other thing, and I suppose that's 
very significant too because when her, her collection of poems came out in 1949 called Woman to Man, that was celebrated as, oh, this is the first real um, poetry about sex from a woman's point of view and Australian poetry anyway. And, um, and I think, you know, and critics often said, well, that this is partly has come out of her experience of having um, a child and having a relationship with Jack McKinney. But I think um, the, the earlier poems, the student poems, suggest that actually she, she had a kind of more challenging perspective or, or critical perspective on those myth, uh, mythologies about women and sex from a, a much earlier time, even before she met Jack. Um, the other thing that I found was um, some student journalism she'd written for the newspaper. And they also show that she was she, she was not a mild figure, to, to put it mildly. She could be really rude and raunchy and funny and um, critical of people as well. And um, I think, yeah, just once again, it demonstrates how these were personality traits which went on to, um, to be critical about other things, not just about students being um, too earnest, which is one of her major bugbears when she was at university. Yeah. Well, I feel Judith would have welcomed your, um, your study <laughs> if she could have read it. You know, she, because she, uh, I think, because she was self-critical, she would have welcomed a sympathetic um, but also critical study that takes, at its centre, your work scrutinises her lifelong passion to understand her ancestry and it's uh, the way it's embedded in the, the moral challenge of, of Australian settlements, really. Uh, so that's something she wanted to be talked about mm. uh, and she wanted, she would surely have welcomed, I think, the way you're pushing the boundaries of that, even taking it into her own life and reinterpreting aspects of her own perspective. Um, we thought we might read, I might read this mm -hmm. letter. Um, there's a letter in the archive which um, I think Judith would have loved to have uh, received. Um, uh, and um, it's a letter, wonderful thing about personal papers, isn't it, that they preserve these kind of letters. And so this was from, it's a letter written in response to the publication of The Cry for the Dead. So this is 1981. And, um, and it, I think Judith would have welcomed this letter because, like your work, it grapples with this um, central aspect of her writing. So it's from a man called James Henry. He's writing from London and his family, um, his father was born not far from uh, the area, the frontier in Queensland where Judith's uh, grandparents were uh, in the 19th century. And he writes to her in response to the book. And this is uh, an extract. The odd thing is, you know, that we always knew the theme in our bones as only children can. Those legendary unspoken horrors, those sins cherished by successive generations were essential to us. They added value to our conspiracy of silence, our annual dues at the Bushman's Club. We suffered much from a simpleton's concept of loyalty, lived our lives at very exalted levels of guilt and fear. Ours was, I suppose, an odd inheritance the preservation in silence of truths suppressed by our elders and betters, the old pastoral nomads who, in their way, did have something to hide. 
We valued that legacy rightly. Without it, we might have seen ourselves for what we were, dusty industrialists masquerading as bushmen, spending our lives gambling tooth and nail against the climate, the markets, the neighbours. There was, it's hard to say this, but it's so, more style to any one of the old hands who also helped to destroy the blacks than there is to be found among their successors who with demon demonstrable imbecility destroy the land stolen on their behalf. There are, I gather, some honourable exceptions. I have not met them. I read The Generations of Men and The Cry for the Dead once more in that order after I wrote to you. The two books, though separated by 30 years in execution, make a beautiful diptych, don't they? A special form for conveying a sort of truth to people at a particular time, especially to those who fear it most like me and the bush people, still in thrall to our imaginary audience of fine old pioneers and other phantoms. As you see, you have revived my memories and put upon the past a set of values which I had despaired of ever being able to experience as my own, though I knew of their existence. I am profoundly grateful to you. P.S. It looks to me, reading this rather incoherent letter, as if the belief systems I acquired as a boy are breaking up, or down, as the case may be. There are many like me to whom this will occur when they catch up with the passion ironies which form like holograms in the angle between your two books. I expect there'll be the devil to pay, but there's a rare elation I quite like in the air. sends shivers down the spine, doesn't it? That, that's such a wonderful letter and so beautifully expressed. Mm -hmm. um, I, uh, his term, our odd inheritance, is so powerful and, I th and, I, and he really um, shows like Judas does, I think, that very difficult position that those more direct inheritors of um, dispossession, non-Indigenous people have in Australia, those descendants of the squatters. Mm. Um, and I, I suppose, yeah, all non-Indigenous people share this same inheritance, but they have that particular <laughs> directness to that. Um, mm. and, and they also understandably have that, um, that, those, that fondness for that culture, so many wonderful things about the, that pastoralist culture. And I think Judith felt a great sense of sadness in some ways in her life as that was sort of decaying, that pastoral inheritance. Isn't that, isn't that fascinating? Um, mm. So, you know, that poem she wrote in 1973, I think, Two Dreamtimes, and it's, it's a mm. poem she writes for Ujiru Nunakuf, her, her friend, Kath Walker, the Aboriginal poet, and it's, it's, it talks about our shared grief for lost country. You mm. have lost your land, your inheritance, and strangely enough, so have I, mm. you know, to the stock exchanges and the mm. traders and the mortgagees. And that's kind of the double story that she tells, not only in that poem, but in The Cry for the Dead, uh, which means it's a double lament. I mean, The Cry for the mm. Dead is the Aboriginal lament for the dead in the morning at dawn. And, and her book, surprisingly, because the story stays with the land, I mean, Generations of Men follows the family story to New England, but in, in The Cry for the Dead, she stays with the land mm. in Queensland and tells that story, and that reveals a, a greater depth with this other unexpected paradox that those white people who dispossessed uh, the Aboriginal people were themselves dispossessed mm. 
Mm. And that's a lament that goes to the heart of a lot of Judith's work, don't you think? Absolutely. And it's a fallout that she didn't seem to really know um, how to quite deal with because she, for example, she um, was very uncomfortable about being connected with Family History Society of her forebears um, and mm. her correspondence in the archive shows that. And she, she, would, she said, I'll be a member, I'll be a paid member, but I don't want my name printed on your membership list. Um, so she did a... You've just sorry, lost oh, your microphone. Oh. I'll just hold oh, it like this. Is that okay? <laughs> it seems a lot more simple. Um, thanks, Tom. Um, she she did uh, she she did revere that past, but yet, mm. and she was very sad about its loss. And and I think another poem that expresses that is um, for a pastoral family, which was published in the mid nineteen eighties, and she talks about. Um, Land Rovers have replaced horses and, and, and the, the sort of the approach of um, mining companies and fast food companies on the land and how the banks now own the land and, and really that's what ended up happening with the Wyndham mm. land. Yeah. Um, the banks in the end took over and well certainly that's the family perspective today and they took over unfairly. So they do feel a sense, her greater family I think, do feel a sense of being dispossessed and... Um, and that's what James Henry's letter yes. spells out too, doesn't it? It says, you know, the old hands, in spite of what they did, somehow there's more to admire about them themselves. Mm. And that what the commercial frontier, mm. corporate frontier of the 20th century is what he feels is, is so sickening in a way, in, in, as he expresses it in his letter. Mm. And I think, you know, about a decade ago, we had those robust debates about the Australian frontier and... Um, deaths on the frontier in, in warfare and there's a lot of counting of the dead being done and one of the things that was overlooked I think at the time was the uh, um, the powerful continuous stream of settler memory uh, that James Henry's letter gives mm. voice to and that Judith's work gives voice to that that there's a continuous history of anxiety about the frontier mm. um, that was denied by some parts of that debate um, as if uh, this had all been reinvented whereas in fact uh, concern about dispossession was there at the beginning and continued mm. through this sort of moral difficult moral inheritance and that's that's the incredibly difficult thing that Judith was prepared to, to face up to and mm. scrutinize so um, uh, with you know it was, there was nothing beyond the bounds of what she, where she was prepared to go, except what you reveal perhaps at the beginning. Well, it's interesting because it just strikes me there's, there's also an irony in the way that history, that frontier history has now turned, um, especially with your work, um, might I say, where increasingly um, it's about reading those sources of those early settlers and... Um, and looking for the gaps and the silences in their work and what they can tell us about that history. Mm. And I guess looking at their, how they unconsciously represented that history. Um, so it almost requires the skill of a literary, literary <laughs> critic um, to unpack those stories. Yet for Judith, she felt that she had to go right to the other end and, and put aside literature 
and mm. those 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 analytic skills and go right to the empirical sort of research as a means of uncovering that history. So, I mean, if she were alive today, who knows, but she, she may be a master of it. She may, yeah. 